Uh, I didn't forget, happy Valentine's Day. How's everybody doing on their Valentine's Day? Everybody doing okay? Everybody got big plans for tonight? Gonna go fight the, maybe there won't be as big crowds. COVID might, you know, calm down the, the Valentine's Day restaurant crowds. Uh, Eleanor and I, uh, for 29 years, haven't really uh, celebrated Valentine's Day. Not because we don't love each other. We don't need a day to remind us that we love each other. Uh, but uh, the, the bigger reason is that we were married on the 1st of February, and so we kind of slam anniversary and Valentine's Day all into one. Uh, we did, though, this past weekend, uh, on Friday, get a chance to go out for Valentine's lunch, I guess. We went to the new Italian place in Ebor. It's called uh, Casa Santo Stefan. Has anybody seen this one? I think that's how you're supposed to say it. It's a uh, it's by uh, the, the guys who do Columbia. It's right next to the Columbia. And I'm hoping they'll send me a free appetizer for saying this. Uh, but it was pretty good. I liked it. It was okay. You should go. All right. Uh, msaunders at baylife.org. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it's fitting that on Valentine's Day, though, we come to a part in the story of Jesus as told by his uh, uh, disciple John uh, that we're attending a wedding. Uh, a wedding at a place called Cana of Galilee. Uh, and before we get to that, I just, I just want to real quick remind us of, of what we're doing in this study of this gospel called John. It's the latest gospel, uh, most recent, if you want to put it that way. The other gospels were written some 20, 30, maybe even 40 years before John. John assumes that you know a lot of the story of Jesus from those gospels, and he kind of, you know, um, um, picks different stories, not entirely, but uh, he certainly has most uh, or the most of the four gospels of, of, of stories that are unique to him. And he tells his gospel or shares his gospel with his original audience and now with us a couple thousand year late, years later for a very specific reason. He says as much in John chapter 20, as we've read most weeks that I've been up here this year. Now, Jesus did many other signs, John writes, in the presence of the disciples, which I did not write down. I didn't get to all of them. They're not all here. But these things that I have written down are written so that you and I who read this gospel may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Uh, this gospel is uh, a 21-chapter invitation to come and follow Jesus. That's, that's what Jesus said. We, we read it last week. As, as people started to follow him, uh, the first ones, a guy named Andrew, and probably, he's unnamed, but probably the writer of this gospel, John. They used to follow John the Baptist, and John the Baptist said to him last week, hey, man, behold, the Lamb of God. And they came up to Jesus, and you remember what they asked him? Jesus saw him. He says, what do you guys want? And, and these, these two disciples said, uh, where are you staying? Can we hang out, in other words? And you remember what Jesus said to them? Yeah. Come on, follow me. Come and you shall see, is what Jesus said. It's what the whole of the Gospel of John is. It's like, try Jesus out. Check him out. See if you don't believe his story and see if you don't choose to have life in his name. I love trying stuff out. Anybody like trying stuff out? Anybody out there, out there adventurous like me? I also love trying the free stuff out. This is so great. John just says, here, I'll give this to you. It's free. It's like going to uh, Cold Stone and getting like 10 of those little pink spoons and just saying, I want this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. And, and you can essentially get, get like a whole scoop of ice cream if you play it right, right? And you just keep trying, you know, different pieces. I love going into Publix and Sam's and Costco on the days that they are handing out the samples. You can get like a whole lunch if you walk around and do it right. 
And my favorite, I'll tell you my favorite all-time freebie, was when Krispy Kreme first opened in Dallas, Texas. And whenever their Hot Now sign came on, um, as they were trying to promote their product, you could go in and you could grab a free Krispy Kreme donut right off the conveyor belt as they were putting all the icing and sugar and stuff and stuff. And it was, it was brilliant. And I think they did that in hopes that you would like taste it and be like, oh, I want a dozen. But is that what I did? Anybody want to guess? No, I was on my way home from the gym that I worked out at, which is a great combo. And, uh, and so anytime I saw the light come on, I was like, well, that's a free donut for me. I'd pull in there, I'd walk up, and I'd be like, hey, can I get my free donut? And they'd hand me the donut, and they'd start to give me the spiel about, you know what, we have these other great flavors, but I'd already be outside doing this one. Thanks, see you, buddy. I love the free stuff. John says to his readers, come and see. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Uh, it's an invitation, so it's interesting as we uh, bridge into the story of Jesus here at this wedding that Jesus is invited to hang out uh, on this happy day with this couple. Let's start reading in John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. A uh, couple things, if you read uh, uh, in, in depth about these uh, texts uh, you can see kind of some symbolism on the third day. What happened on the third day at the end of John? Anybody remember what happened on the third day? And Jesus rose from the grave on the third day. So maybe John's kind of bookending his story with third days, maybe. Uh, uh, it also says that G Jesus, uh, uh, his mother, Mary, it doesn't mention her by name. That's, that's fine. Don't, don't, no one's dissing Mary. Back then in those days, women were often associated with the men in their lives. So it'd be G or, uh, the, the, the wife of Joseph or the mother of Jesus. Joseph might be dead by, that, by now, so that's not why he's not mentioned. But uh, the mother of Jesus, Mary, was there at this wedding. And it says, uh, verse 2, that Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And if you've been following along, we're basically in, in one of the first weeks weeks of Jesus' ministry years, uh, and there's actual, you know, days, seven days, you know, kind of opening this, this story of Jesus in John's gospel. On the first day, John the Baptist uh, says, behold the lamb, and, and talks with some reporters or some officials from Jer Jerusalem and says, no, I'm not the Messiah. Jesus is. It goes on from there uh, to, to, you know, subsequent days, Jesus calling to himself, uh, these first disciples that are mentioned here in John chapter 2. Uh, there's five of them. Uh, you got Andrew and his brother, Simon Peter. Uh, you got uh, Philip and Nathaniel, who he met in Galilee. And then this unnamed disciple, I've already mentioned, I think it's probably John. But these five guys are like, you know, when Jesus got the invitation to the wedding, it's like, here's my plus five, right? And, uh, and, and they end up going to this wedding together. Now what uh, flows from this is the story of this wedding and what Jesus does at it. I was thinking about weddings this week. I think I'm up to around 200 weddings in my pastoral career, which may not seem like a lot to you. It may seem like a, a whole lot to you. I don't know, but it's, it's enough. And I've seen some unique weddings. Anybody ever been to a, a unique wedding? But, but I've, I've seen almost 200 weddings as, as an officiant, and they've all ended up the same. Two people got married. They came in uh, apart, and they walked out together, legally. Like, they're bound together. Uh, you know, in life. Uh, some of the unique ones, like uh, I get asked all the time, what was the latest a bride ever showed up at one of your weddings? 45 minutes late. That was, that's the record. There was others that were later, but this one bride, 45 minutes. And I was like, oh, I hope she's showing. Anyway, uh, she did. And they're fine. Everything's great. Another unique wedding. 
Uh, this one time, uh, a young couple uh, that grew up in the youth group that Eleanor and I were uh, serving in, in Texas, and decided to get married. Great wedding, great service. Something happened during the pictures, though, where they got their, their feathers ruffled, and uh, this, this young couple decided that they weren't going to go to their reception. And uh, so the mother of the groom came to me and said, hey, can you convince my kids to come to this reception? And it was my job to go upstairs and coax them down. Uh, they went. They're still together. Everything's fine. But, you know, unique, right? Every wedding's unique. One of my favorite weddings, most recent weddings, uh, was a wedding where um, we were all standing in, the, in, the, in this beautiful chapel. And uh, everybody had walked in, groom and all the, all the groom's people and, and bride's people. Them. Anyway, uh, but we're all there. And the door shut. Has anybody been to this wedding? The door shut because it's going to be the big reveal for the, 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 the bride and her father as they walk down the aisle. And, and so uh, the door shut. And I'm standing there. And I have this unique uh, position as, as the officiant at weddings to be the last human being that a single male talks to before he's married, right? And, uh, and so I'm standing next to this groom and we're just talking. Saying, Isn't this amazing? This is so great. You're going to be a husband. And this is crazy. Those doors are going to open. We're just, you know, talking back and forth. And it, it's taken a while for these doors to open. Uh, and so <laughs> after a few seconds, which seemed longer, uh, uh, the door finally cracks open. It's not the bride. This very tall, lanky guy walks in. And he's a friend of, of both sides of the bridal party. And one of the guys in the bridal party says, Will! And everybody turns to watch this not bride walk into the room. And he, this, this young guy walks in and he's all like, how's it going? Yeah. Uh, he had been, he had gotten there late and he had uh, been standing out there just, you know, he, it wasn't his idea to walk in. Uh, he was patiently waiting for the bride to have her moment. But as she collected herself, one of the, uh, you know, the coordinator people said, you can just walk in, just go on in. And so in he went. And it was, it was one of the funniest moments in a wedding that I've ever had because... We're, you know, waiting for this beautiful bride, and we got Will. That was it. And uh, I think it helped kind of break the tension some, and uh, uh, she eventually walked down. It was a beautiful, beautiful wedding. Uh, Anybody want to know what my favorite wedding was? I didn't officiate at this one. I was the groom. That was my favorite wedding. And uh, 29 years and 13 days ago, I got to stand with my wife, Eleanor, and... uh, and, and, and in that moment, for us, our lives changed forever. That's, that's the one thing that every wedding has in common. Life for the people participating changes forever. You have gone from being two to being one. Another thing that's uh, akin to every marriage ceremony, at least the Christian ones, is that there's this understanding that we've entered into a covenant. This is a God thing. It's not just a legally binding share checks, you know, uh, and bills and kids eventually, if he wills. This, this is a union um, devised by, created by God himself. So weddings are a time of change and covenant, and it's no wonder that as John opens his gospel, he opens with the story of a wedding. Because we're going to see in Jesus, uh, who becomes known to us as our bridegroom, we, his church, his bride, that this wedding picture is throughout scripture. Uh, that, that he, uh, as our bridegroom, as our savior, comes to lavish his grace upon us. We're gonna talk about that today. John's really intentional in his first two stories with Jesus. He, he tells the story of his disciples coming, but then the first two stories in chapter two are of a wedding, grace, and of a thrashing, the temple where he casts out everybody who comes against his father or maligns his father's name. 
Those are the two sides of our Savior. He's a, a lamb uh, given for grace, and he's a lion who does not take names. Uh, he, he is not to be messed with. I, I love that John starts with both of those as he opens his story of Jesus. I digress. Want to go back to the wedding? So Jesus is there. His mother Mary's there. Uh, Mary's probably uh, got some kind of prominent role in this wedding. Uh, because she comes to Jesus at some point in the process, and she says to Jesus what uh, we see here in verse 3. Uh, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, Buddy, we have no wine. Uh, this is Hebrew code for the party's over. We've got no joy. Now, you can read the Old Testament. Almost always, wine is associated with celebration. It's associated with joy and rejoicing. And so symbolically here, uh, even though physically and actually they had run out of wine, uh, Mary was saying, this thing's in trouble. Jesus, we're out of wine. Implied, you've got to do something. Let's break this down a little bit. W weddings back then were different from our weddings. Our weddings, you show up usually on a Saturday, uh, but you hang out, you go through the ceremony. Mine take about 20 minutes, right? And, uh, and then what, what happens after is... In our culture, pictures, not a problem back here in first century uh, Jerusalem or first century Israel. Uh, but uh, uh, then you go to the celebration. That was something that the Israelites did pretty good. In fact, uh, historical documents reveal to us that when, it, when a Jew in this era got married, it wasn't a day, it was a week. Sometimes two that people would celebrate this couple. It was like the pinnacle of their existence, their wedding ex experience. They would be treated as a king and a queen by their co community for that entire time. And celebrations would be you know, going off every night uh, for their namesake and for their, uh, their, to celebrate their nuptials. Uh, they would go off to the honeymoon, which is basically a word that means sweet month. They would hang out for a month together, typically, if, if, if they could. Yeah, but then they would go right back to the subsistent living that most Israelites experienced at that time. The pinnacle of their existence was their wedding to each other. So it was that there were great expectations in the Israeli community on this ceremony. And to run out of wine or food or both, huge faux pas. Just could not happen. And here they are, they've run out of wine. Again, in, in historical documents, it's been shown that if uh, you were a guest at a wedding that ran out of wine, you could take that couple to court, sue them for breach of contract or whatever it would be. Uh, because things didn't go so well at this wedding. I, you know, how about that in these days? I didn't like the cake, and so I'm entitled to damages of whatever. Uh, Mary, maybe she was a caterer, an assistant to one of the wedding coordinators, whatever the case, she comes up to Jesus, and there is a problem. Houston, we have a problem. No wine, no joy, parties over. Hmm. Um, why did she come to Jesus? This is probably a good question. Well, she knows who Jesus is. In fact, she's been waiting his whole life for him to start doing what he was sent to earth to do. She, she had met the angel at his birth. She knew that she hadn't been with any man to the point where she could become pregnant. This is certainly a miracle of God. And so this child is from God and for God. And I know that he's got some work to do. Maybe this is the time. Some scholars think that, you know, she's heard of the baptism of Jesus and how this voice from heaven said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. This dove comes down as a symbol of the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus. Uh, this might be the beginning. He, he comes back from his, his journeys, and he's got five strangers following him. He's actually brought them to the wedding. 
So she's looking at this whole scene and thinking, well, maybe it's time. Hey, perfect. You're, you're about to launch whatever it is that you were sent here to earth to do. I know you're from God and you probably have the powers of God. Can you help us with the wine situation? That's why she comes to him. Now, what we're going to learn is, is a couple things uh, about the character of Jesus and, and one thing about the determination of Jesus. We'll start with that because Jesus' response to his mother, uh, at least in initial readings, is kind of like, whoa, settle down, son of God. Here's what it says. Uh, and here's what we're going to learn, that Jesus puts his mission ahead of his mom. Jesus was singular in his focus. He says as much in his response to Mary. Verse four, Jesus says to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. I remember reading that for the first time being like, hey, she just asked about the wine. Right. We gotta be careful when we read the Bible not to put our American uh, you know, terminologies or idioms or, or vernaculars into the story of this first century Israeli world. When we say woman, we usually say it like that, right? It's stern and gruff, and it's going to be followed by a set somebody straight sentence, right? Woman, get your stuff together, or son, you know what I'm saying? That's not what's happening here. This is the Greek word gune. Everybody say gune. That always makes me laugh that a woman's name in Greek is gune. It just sounds funny. Anyway, uh, but gune uh, is used twice of Mary in the book of John uh, here at the wedding, and then later at the cross, Jesus looks down on his mother as he's dying. He's talking to John, the writer of this gospel. He says, take care of her, and he, he calls her, it's translated in the NIV, dear woman. Maybe even uh, in this verse, if you're reading a certain translation, it says, dear woman. He's not saying this in exasperation or in, you know, uh, in a terse or gruff manner. He's, he's being respectful to his mom. It's, it's akin to us saying to a woman, madame or ma'am. Uh, he turns respectfully to his, his mother and he says this. He says, M uh, woman, why are you involving me in this? Why are we talking? It's really funky Greek. It's like, uh, you know, what me, what you is basically the Greek sentence. It's like, why are we talking about this? And then he says, uh, you know, kind of a clarifying statement. He says, my hour has not yet come. Jesus is going to talk a lot about his hour. It's going to be a real theme here in John. He's going to always refer to my hour. The hour has not yet come. The hour draws nigh. The hour, as we're going to understand it from the whole of the book of John, is his, his crucifixion, his resurrection, the, the culmination of his saving work here on earth. But what he's basically, as John writes this telling of the story, is what he's putting forward, even in this conversation with his mom, is like, listen, mom, this is what's most important to me. My father's bidding, my father's work. I see that we've got a problem here. I see that they could use some help with the wine situation, but I want to make it very clear from here and all the way through to the accomplishment of the work of my hour, that will be my focus in life. And we saw that even earlier in Jesus' life in the book of Luke. Remember, he's hanging out in Jerusalem with his family and he stays behind in the temple as his family moves forward and heads back to where their home is. Mary and Joseph realize he's not with them. And in Luke chapter two, they head back to the temple. They find him hanging out with all these teachers in the temple and he's basically teaching the scriptures that he inspired and wrote to these guys who didn't understand what he meant. And uh, his mother comes up to him and says, why would you do this to us? That's what moms say to kids. You know, when that kind of thing happens. Remember what he says? I'm paraphrasing, but basically, hey, I'm in my father's house. 
I'm doing my father's work. Now it goes on to say that he submitted to his parents and returned with them and that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. I mean, the story went on, but he asserted very clearly, my mission matters most. Later in the book of John, in, in chapter 5, verse 19, he's talking to his disciples. He says it like this. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord. He only does what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, the son does likewise. You know what? We're going to go on with the rest of the story here. But can I just pause and say that this is my prayer for my life and for yours, that we would be so father-focused, so in tune with his mission for us, that we would meet him in the hours that he's set aside for us to serve him and honor him, and that that would be so who we are that we'd set aside even mom, whatever her hopes for us are, even uh, our country and whatever uh, you know, they vote to mandate uh, in, our, in our governings. Uh, all of those things come secondary for the Christ follower to the bidding of our heavenly father. Is everybody with me? That's what Jesus starts the story with. His mom uh, apparently has a conversation that goes further than this because if I was just reading verse four, I'd be like, Jesus put her down. He says, no, I'm not gonna get involved in this. It's not my hour. But then the story goes on. He totally gets involved in this wedding situation. Apparently he, like early on in his life, submitted to his earthly mother, got the okay from his heavenly father. And he says, all right, let's do this. Let's figure out the wine situation. And that's what happens next. He confirms to his mom, I'll help. And then the mom, Mary, turns to the servants who are involved in the serving of this wine. And he says to the servants, do whatever he tells you. I don't know if you underline verses in your Bible, uh, but if you don't, this would be a great one to start with. And you don't even have to underline the first part. Just underline what Mary said. This is the great key to Christ's life. Just do whatever Jesus tells you. I'm done. I, I think I'm done right there. I can just be done. Because that's what all of this yammering up here by me and Travis and whoever gets up here to talk to you is all about. Know Jesus, trust Jesus, and do what he tells you to do. That's the Christ life. This should appear on everybody's dash, on some three-by-five card or on the back of some sealed receipt from Costco or whatever you want to put it on. Just write those words. Make them big and bold. Do whatever he tells you. He's revealed it in his written word to us. He reveals it to us in our spirit. I, I trust that Jesus by his spirit is telling me what to do all the time. And can I just share with you? My life goes markedly better when I respond in, in kind to what Jesus is telling me to do, whether from his word or in my heart. I've been uh, spurred on uh, through you know, the encouragements of some guys in my life group and just in my own times with God to be more active in discipling my kids. My kids are kind of in different places with God right now. But what God's told me to do, it's simple. I get this verse every day from a guy that used to go to church here all the time, and I see him on occasion, but he writes me a verse every morning. Here's, here's what God said. Hey, share that verse with your kids, and just tell them you love them, and then let me do the rest. And so I take that little verse from God's word, I push my thumb on it, a copy comes up, like your phone, just like that, and I hit copy, and then I just hammer out a, hey, birds, that's what I call my kids, the birds. Hey, birds, how's it going? Your dad loves you, praying for you today. Here's some word, have a bite. And I just throw it out there. And I can't, you know, it's only been a week or two that I've been doing this, but I can't tell you 
the joy that I have, did it twice today. Yesterday I wrote it all out and I forgot to hit send. Has anybody done that with your texts? I do that all the time. I forget to hit the blue arrow. Anyway, uh, but I sent them two today. And I'm just trusting that God is going to take this little small thing that I sensed Jesus was telling me to do. He's going to use it for his glory and for my kids' good. Who's in for that? Anybody in for that? It's what happens when we choose to do what Jesus tells us. That's what Mary told the servants to do. And then Jesus helps. And there's two things that I want you to see about Jesus Jesus helping in this situation. The first thing is that Jesus provides hope in what is an otherwise hopeless situation. He does this on the regular, but here at this wedding, no one else could fix the wine situation. You and I at our weddings, we run out of, pick the item, uh, water, bottled water, or other drinks, or you know, some kind of food. I mean, if worse comes to worse, someone gets in a car, which most of us have, and they head down to a store, which are everywhere, and pick up whatever is necessary so that the party can go on. That's not the case here in you know, uh, rural Israel in the first century. It's not like you could just, you know, find more wine. There was no hope for this party to go on. And so Jesus brings hope to a hopeless situation. Look what it says there in John chapter 2, verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars, water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification. We'll cover that in a second. Each holding 20 or 30 gallons. These are pretty stout stone jars. They were hewed from stone. Uh, they weren't earthenware. And, uh, uh, and, and so Jesus sees these jars, he's like, perfect. And he tells these guys who are in charge of wine distribution, go get some water, fill these suckers up. And he tells them, fill the jars to the brim, it says in verse 7. I want that stuff washing over the edge. We'll talk about that too. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so they did. And somewhere between the filling of the jars with water and the delivery to the master of the priest, somewhere in there, that water turned into wine. A hopeless situation went from hopeless to the parties back on. Jesus is uh, the creator. We learned that in chapter one, verse three, that there was nothing that was made that he didn't make. And so here in this situation, the creator of all things looks at his creation. He says, you know what? Water, you're now wine. Only God has the power to take something that is and make it something else. We can manipulate what he's created, but we cannot recreate. Jesus not only gives hope in a hopeless situation, but he provides, and when he provides, he goes above and beyond what is necessary for provision. What a great thing to have in a savior. Is anybody all in favor of above and beyond saviors? Anybody in favor of that? I'm in. Jesus sees this situation, and and look what the reaction of those who don't know that the miracle has happened have. The master of the feast, verse 9, tastes the water now become wine, because he didn't know that uh, it had come from, you know, Jesus, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And and the same master of the feast, like the, I don't know, the DJ, I don't know what he was, but anyway, the same master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he says to the bridegroom, who was responsible to make sure that the wine hadn't run out, maybe he didn't even know that the wine had run out. I think he did. Anyway, he says to him, hey, man, everybody who has these weddings, I've been to a ton of them, I've spun records. That's a very old statement. But anyway, um, everyone serves the good wine verse for, first, verse 10. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine comes out. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, picture this, everybody. This is a typical wedding. They had already exhausted the good wine. The good wine in their custom came out first. So whatever came out first was like, you know, the, the 65 or whatever it was in their day and age. It was the good stuff. 
They had run out of both the good and the bad stuff, but they'd already tried the good stuff. And here comes the master of ceremonies, and he says, man, I thought what you served first was pretty good, but this, what you're serving now, (coughs) is so much better than what you started with. You're like breaking all the rules, bro. Because everybody knows that you serve the best stuff first, and then you bring the box stuff out, right? You know, here's the stuff that we hide in the back of the fridge, and it's kind of sat back there, and uh, you know, you can have this because you've had enough of the good stuff that you're not going to tell this is the bad stuff. But he says, no, you saved your best for last. Don't miss this either. It's not just beyond what they expected. It's above what they expected. How many gallons did these guys get? I mean, we're probably talking, you know, 50, maybe 100 people in this little community here in Canaan of Galilee hanging out at this celebration. They've got between 120 and 180 gallons of wine. That's a lot of vino. Like if you go with the high end, that's like 2,000, 2,500 glasses of wine, depending on how big your glass is. That's a lot. So for 100 people to have 2,500, this is a party. Are we talking party right now? We're talking party. And, but here's what Jesus does. Over and over in his story, he doesn't just provide, he goes above and beyond. It says in, in John chapter 1, verse uh, 16, that um, Jesus uh, comes, and when he comes, he comes, uh, and, and from his fullness, verse 16, we have all received, and he says here, John says, grace upon grace. He keeps stacking the grace. We, we sing it here in a song. We say that God is more than enough, and he's always more, Right? I mean, think about the other stories, uh, other miracles of Jesus' life. He, he, he goes and teaches a bunch of people. There's 5,000 men there, probably their wives and their families. So we're talking 10, 12, 15,000 people maybe, and they're all hungry, and there's no food. And remember the little kid says, you can have my Lunchables. And, and so there's, you know, there's two little fish, and there's five loaves of bread. And Jesus says, perfect, Timmy. That's what the kid's name was. Not many people know that. But uh, uh, we're going to use your lunch, and we're going to feed everybody here. And he does. He starts blessing this, this meal, and it starts filling baskets to the point where the disciples go out and disperse their first basket full, and they come back, and Jesus is like, here's your next one, and they just keep, I mean, can you pick, <clears throat> don't miss the miracle. Can you picture how long it took for however many people to serve this many people this much food? I mean, we're talking like Cisco truck. We're talking massive amounts of fish and bread, sandwiches for everybody, but at the end of that day, as everybody's eaten their full, the Bible reports that Jesus says, hey guys, everybody grab your basket one more time because I want you to go bust some tables. I want you to go out there and I want you to see what's left over. And every disciple came back with leftovers, lunch for tomorrow, goodie bags. And Jesus just kind of leaves it at that. And the message is, as Jesus does his miracles, they all teach. The message is, hey, I'm not just going to give you enough Sometimes that's what I'll give you, but most of the time I give you way more than enough and I always give you more than you deserve. In the Psalms, Psalm 23, one of my favorites, it starts out, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That talks about our need. He's always gonna give us what we need. He leads me beside still waters in the green pastures. But then at the end of Psalm 23, it says this in verse five, it says, you prepare before me in the pre- a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil and my cup. Anybody know? Overflows. How full was he, were the jars? He said, fill it to the brim. I think that was a coffee brand back in the day. 
But I, yeah, come on. That was, that was dainty. Thank you, Mickey. John chapter 10, verse 10 says this, Jesus came that we might have life and have it to the full. So let me wrap this up so you can go home. Here we are at this wedding. And Jesus takes this opportunity. And John, as the writer of this gospel, takes this opportunity to introduce us to Jesus. He's telling everybody what he's telling them so that we might believe and have life in his name. And here's what he's telling us about Jesus. Jesus had this singular focus. He was about his father and his father's work. He was about living for the hour that he might go to the cross and then rise from the grave so that you and I might be saved. Anybody grateful that he did that? Yeah. And then it also shows us that Jesus is the provider of hope in hopeless situations. And when he gives, he gives above and beyond, as it says in Ephesians, what we could ask or think. He does all of this, like it says in John 20, and here in John chapter 2, verse 11, so that we might believe. John summarizes here, he says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana of Galilee, where he manifested his glory. He showed everybody, I'm God. And he did this and his disciples believed in him. See, Jesus does what he does so that his disciples will believe in him, so that people will see him and understand him and follow him. Now, this is a a known fact in in the story of the Gospels. Usually these first disciples weren't picking up what Jesus was putting down right away. Like they needed some time to digest what they had seen. Often they would say, what was that about? Like you taught this parable, we don't get it. Or you did this thing, we don't understand. <laughs> in, in John chapter, uh, uh, where is it? 12, verse 16. Uh, Jesus is about to walk into Jerusalem on what we know as Palm Sunday. But he does this strange thing. He, he says, I don't want to go on a white horse like generals who conquer. I want to go on the back of a donkey. And he was doing this because he knew Isaiah 62 said that the Messiah will enter into Jerusalem on the back of a young donkey. His disciples apparently had forgotten that, and that's what they talk about as John reports it here. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him. And that had to be done to him. It was often the case. And so I, I think that's probably what's happening here in the story of the wedding. When the or first disciples saw this, they believed as much as they could believe. What, a, what an amazing thing to see water turned into wine. But it wasn't until later that they saw the symbols of what had happened that day. Jesus had brought them there, their plus five, uh, to this wedding, which is a place, as we've already said, as a covenant, a place of covenant and union, of joy and celebration. At this wedding, problems arise. The hosts are on empty. The wine has run out. So Jesus steps in and provides hope in a hopeless situation. He provides above and beyond. Now, everybody take that story and then let's remember our gospel, right? When Jesus came to the world, we were empty. In fact, if you're here and you don't know Jesus by faith, yes, the Bible calls you dead in your transgressions and sins. You're empty. And you've got no hope in and of yourselves. That's why Jesus uses, I believe, these, these jars, these Jewish symbols. They were uh, jars that would be used to, to wash our hands before our meals and, and to be ceremonially clean. He says, well, let me take these vestiges of the old covenant and let me introduce to you a new way. 
And we take what it had been originally used for to hold water, to wash. And let me fill it with the joy of a new wine. Because I've come to fulfill this covenant. Not to banish it, I've come to complete it. And you'll find life in me. Jesus stands in front of these same disciples and some others on, at, a, at another Old Testament feast. He's hanging out uh, at the Seder feast, Passover meal. And he holds up a cup that's full of wine. And it's always meant this one thing in the old ways. But he says, you know what? As long, every time you drink this cup from now on, here's what I want you to remember. This is me. And it's my blood that's shed for you. It's a new covenant that you can only find with me. Jesus has come to the hopeless to give them hope. Jesus has come to give us grace upon grace. He starts with his sacrificial death where he atones for our sins. He heaps grace upon grace. He rises from the grave and in doing so gives us hope over our death and we can have life forever with him. The Bible's clear. Any religious system or any method that would seek to you know, produce these things for ourselves will fail. But Jesus does all of these things for us. So it is that a couple chapters from now, Jesus hangs out with this guy, Nicodemus, tells him he's got to be born again. Same deal. Nicodemus does not understand what Jesus is saying. But then we get the end zone verse, right? And Jesus brings it all together for us. He says, for God, say it with me, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. That's our Jesus. That's what he was representing in the miracle at, at Cana. I'm, I'm here to bring hope where there is none, to lavish my grace upon you. So let me talk to who's here today. Uh, there's some, I'm guessing, either watching me online or hanging out in this room and next door who have kind of orbited the Jesus story but never really landed. You know who he is and what he's about, but you've never truly given your life to him in faith. Uh, I want to just quickly say to you, I believe that you're listening to me today so that you can make that decision and that you can follow him uh, like John hoped you would when you read his gospel. Now, you need to understand that you are without hope. Your jar's empty. And only Jesus can give you the hope that you need. He wants to give you his grace upon grace. But the Bible tells us, like we just said together, for whoever believes on him will not perish but have everlasting life. You've got to believe. Salvation is the easiest, hardest thing you're ever going to do. It's easy because you just have to, by faith, believe. It's hard because you've got to give Jesus your life. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus yet, here's the gospel. You're a sinner. You need a savior. You need to admit that you have sin. You need to believe that Jesus is your savior. And then you need to confess your sin, choose Christ, and commit your life to him. That's the beginning. If you want to do that this morning, as uh, I got to talk to a couple people after the last service, you can come on down. We don't do uh, aisle walks that often. But if you want to walk this one and talk to me, I'd love to introduce you to Jesus. Now, the rest of you are looking at me and you're like, been there, done that, Mark. Got the T-shirt. It's on underneath, I promise. But here's the deal with us. Can I just say this? As Christians sometimes, Jesus just kind of blends in with the wallpaper. Just kind of becomes a part of the scene. We could stop being amazed by grace. We sing the song, but it's not really our heart. 
And so here's the deal. You don't have to dance or float out of here, but if you know that you know that Jesus has taken a back seat in your life, that uh, as Jesus was our example, he's, he's not your first and your foremost, that you've been given parts of you to other things, and you want to set those things right, you get to walk up here too and talk to me or one of our other pastors and just pray that God would set things straight. Jesus gives hope to the hopeless and grace upon grace. He breaks the chains that bind us and sets us free. It's pretty cool. We get to sing that song about him. You come if you need to. Let's stand and sing.